In the previous episode, we examined how the economy underpins any given culture and society, including in the American South. We made connections between the agrarian tradition and things like pickup trucks and high-calorie breakfasts in the American South and why those traditions are not just traditions. This is not just a part of culture. These are largely guided by the economic basis itself. Once you have that established, once you set out that very real structure, that base, uh, you have over top of it what Karl Marx called the superstructure. Now he discussed things like the, the legal system and the government and, and uh, characteristics of that sort. But what I want to link it to and what I want to discuss in, in this episode and really the next one as well would be the arts. How are the arts tied to this very real base? How did the arts go about commenting on that very real base? Because the arts oftentimes project uh, an idealized version of a particular culture. This is what the culture strives to be. You can think of it in terms of like the ancient Greeks, for example. Um, what do they want to be and how do they wish to see themselves? And in that way, they created their idealized selves inside their art. And that's what this episode is going to be about. And then really pouring over into the next episode, we'll start to look at some of the artists associated with the American South as well. Let's get started. To begin a discussion like this, it may be easy uh, to look outside of our own culture, the culture we wish to examine, in order to see how art applies to other cultures as well. Sometimes it's easier to examine it outside of the context and then turn that back around and, and re-examine it inside the context. So let's talk about the ancient Greek culture just for a moment, because most people in the West are at least vaguely familiar with that, uh, that particular topic. And let's think about their art. Let's think about what they painted, the types of buildings that they created, the particular stories that they told. Uh, most people, again, in the West are familiar with tales like Odysseus's journey back to his homeland. Um, this is a sort of idealized creation of, of what a Greek person could be. Um, this is a person who, who desired to go home, um, who had a committed wife at home. And so there are some stories in there about his wife, Persephone. Um, we also have, you know, stories of his son. We have stories uh, about how he used his wits in order to both outsmart those around him and also perhaps doom some of the people around him as well. Um, specifically, I'm thinking of the story where he could not help himself but the cyclops on the, the, uh, the shore. So the, again, you have captured inside this tale, the Odyssey, um, a lot of the, the underlying themes and ideals that ancient Greek culture would want to embody and to um, to think about in, in reflection to itself. And yet at the same time, we also have art in ancient Greek culture that would uh, that, that was very difficult to engage with. And it was uh, somewhat ugly. And these are stories that we still uh, return to today because of, of the tragedy of these stories. I mean, we, you know, if you've ever been through a high school uh, class, they at some point talked about Greek tragedy because Greek tragedy is, I would say, perhaps unparalleled in, in you know, most of the other Western uh, canon. Uh, you have, you know, of course, things like Shakespeare and, and uh, whatnot, but really it's, it's completely unparalleled. 
that again, these are the, the worst fears and the greatest aspirations and the, the, the things that really trouble that culture are embodied and, and codified inside of its art. And if we can see that when we look at Greek culture, if we can examine it and we can say, oh, it's, it's actually quite easy to see. Yes, of course, that's what the Greeks wanted to see themselves as. Because, I mean, quite frankly, if we're to, to be honest, uh, Greek people were just like any other people. They woke up every day. They wanted to eat. Um, they wanted to, uh, I, mean, I think most of them would want to go out and, and work a good job and, and be able to earn a living. Um, they had waste you know, from their bodies that they had to process. And that was a problem because, you know, that's always a problem in human societies. Um, but you don't see things like that in their art because quite frankly, again, the art, it faces all of that. It gets rid of it in favor of just talking about the values and looking at, again, the, the heightened emotions and the catharsis that comes from um, these sorts of subjects. So again, if we can see how that operates in an outside culture, and I invite you to think about it before you, you know, move on with this podcast, um, then we can turn that back around and we can start to see some of it inside of the American South as well. Now, before I move on and start to look at specific examples from inside the American South, I want to spend some time talking about the effect art has on a culture as a total as well. I always imagine it sort of like as a washing machine, you know, somebody um, has a life experience and they create some kind of art that reflects that experience. And then the larger culture um, absorbs that and takes it in. And then that becomes part of the living experience of other people. And then those people have some kind of experience. And then it just goes on this cycle over and over and over. Um, the best example I can think of, and this shows a little bit of my age, is a number of years ago, there was a commercial um, where some guys were on the phone and they were going, what's up? And then, you know, they'd stick their tongues out and then they just act completely ridiculous. And this was somewhat based, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, loosely on the movie screen because they were behaving in some, some ways that were very similar to that. Now, with all of that in mind, um, it, it got absorbed into the culture and, you know, people talked about it and they would say these things for, you know, quite a while um, jokingly. And then uh, it became kind of passe and people stop saying it, and then they would make fun of you if you said it, and then it just kind of gotten, it was forgotten at some point. And yet there's kind of a dim echo of it in our culture, even into the present, because we still have, um, I, I believe I saw a commercial something like a year or two ago from the creation of this podcast, a commercial that referenced it. So that there's that cycle that takes place, right? And that invites the really interesting question, Does is the purpose of art to reflect a culture to challenge a culture? Is it to embody the culture? Is it to embody its values? Does, does art have one specific purpose? And I, I ask all these questions because I know if you have tried to create art before, you probably have thought about these, maybe intuitively, maybe openly. But if you haven't tried to create art before, then you know you might go to a museum and say, okay, I don't really understand what art is or why I'm here or why people make such a big deal out of this. But again, if you're taking this class on culture, if you're you know, thinking about culture in general, it boils down to what is the purpose and function of art? Uh, what should art be doing? Does it have a particular aim? And these are really important questions, by the way, because if we go again, all the way back to the ancient Greeks, we, we look at Plato and Plato was afraid of art um, because Plato was afraid of the power that art had to challenge and influence the population. And he thought that uh, art had no place 
in a well-governed uh, society because it could undermine leaders. So art is very, very powerful. And uh, let's, let's think about that a little bit more. First off, let's think about how art, again, evokes a particular civilization. If we go back to the ancient Greeks, we have, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad as written down by Homer. Uh, these were traditions that had long been passed on. And then someone, uh, at least on paper, claiming to be Homer, somebody named Homer, uh, wrote these down. Also, we have the ancient Babylonians and the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, we read these and it evokes some particular flavor of that culture. Uh, we might have, uh, you know, books taken from other cultures as well, but let's bring it home and let's look at something that, that can make you a little bit uncomfortable. What well, really, that's the, the purpose of a good education. Let's think about the, the Bible for a second. Um, there are classes out there that read the Bible as literature, not as a holy text, as literature. Uh, what they'll do is they'll go through and criticize it. They'll look at the, the purpose and the function and the the uh, cultural context surrounding the creation of a particular passage in the Bible. Uh, but if we look at that and we say, okay, the Bible has created some kind of Christian culture, and you know, never mind, we're going to set aside just for a second for the sake of argument, all the different denominations and, and whatnot uh, associated with Christianity. We're just going to talk about it as one giant whole for just a second here. And say, again, that the Bible has created this Christian culture, right? That is, if we see the Bible in terms of, of uh, cultural stories that people tell, those stories, like I said with the washing machine a second ago, were created by someone in order to reflect a, a topic or an idea that we today in the present have a hard time connecting because we're not quite sure who some of the authors happen to be. Um, and then that becomes a part of the lived experiences of people. And consider tales like uh, Jonah and the whale, for example, and the ways in which it's interpreted. Was there a literal whale? Um, was this a metaphor? Was this a, a parable? Well, what are the ways that we could go about interpreting the, uh, this story inside the Bible? And then that becomes part of the lived experience of the people who read those stories because the way that they're interpreting it now becomes part of their religion. And their religion feeds back into the Bible. And it just, again, feeds this cycle of, of a Christian culture that exists until the present. Um, I take that example because, you know, clearly, again, if we're talking about culture, I want to talk about, you know, culture in general. And then I really want to zoom in on the American South. But by thinking about these topics and, you know, the, the way in which the past manifested in certain texts and the way in which your own life manifests in your understanding and interpretation of the Bible, um, these are ways in which you can see the power and influence that the written word and that uh, literature or uh, people capturing culture in some kind of a document can have on all of our lived experiences. When I teach this topic, I get to the point that I'm at right now, and then I diverge into a particular story, and that's where we're going to go at present. If you are not a part of this class, um, and you're just listening to this for you know fun or or what have you to pass the time. Uh, the particular story that I use in my class is William Faulkner's An Odor of Verbena. And I believe that you can find that online somewhere. Um, it's, I believe, widely available at this point. I'm pretty sure I've seen it somewhere online. But we look at this story in terms of all the things that I just said a second ago, and especially in terms of the American South itself. How then does this story evoke Southern culture? How does it challenge Southern culture? 
How does it uh, reinforce it or undermine it or a whole host of all the things that we just discussed uh, in the past couple of minutes? I'm going to spend a, a quite a bit of time right now on that story because I want to make sure that I can unpack it. And then I'm going to return to at the end um, all the, the sort of threads that I've woven here at the beginning. And then we'll finish up in, in the next episode. I'll talk about, again, more specific writers. Let's start that discussion with the very uh, bird's eye over, uh, overview of the entire text itself. Now, this is a story, in essence, about a son who learns that his father has been murdered by a business associate of his. Um, the father had done some wrong to that business associate, and that business associate eventually just snapped uh, and decided to murder him. This is in the Old South. Uh, before we get to the New South, but it's right on the cusp of transitioning into the New South. Now, the son is faced with the terrible choice. According to the, the rules, the unspoken rules and sort of unspoken laws of the Old South, he was supposed to go and get revenge for his father's murder, which means that he, in turn, as the son, must go and murder the murderer. The the man, the, the young man, Bayard, learns again of his father's murder and goes to confront the murderer, the man named Redmond. Everybody encourages Bayard, you must murder him. Here are some guns. Here's, you know, here's how I would do it. And Bayard keeps putting them off and saying, no, no, you know, I'm going to do it my own way. Basically, he, he never says it in quite so few words, but um, he just turns aside all help. He walks directly into Redmond's office, confronts him, walks straight towards him, and Redman lifts his pistol and fires at Bayard. And Bayard never flinches and just continues to walk straight toward him, uh, knowing, saying plainly that Redman is going to miss him. When Redman fires his gun several times, he puts the gun down, puts on his hat, jumps up, and runs out the door uh, past Bayard's father's men who are waiting outside to see what the outcome will be. And they exclaim, oh, not, not only have you shot the father, now you've shot the son too, but then they go inside and see, see Bayard and he's fine and he's just sitting there. And they realize that he has confronted the man without violence and uh, and that the man, you know, that Redmond now gets on a train and completely leaves town. That's the story in a nutshell. Um, there are far more components to it as well, but I'm going to build on those components as we go forward. I just want to have a baseline here. Also in a previous episode of this podcast, I talked about some of the groups that have influenced uh, the South in very broad ways. And so if we look at groups like the Scots and Irish, they had this tradition of an eye for an eye, uh, sort of vendetta type justice that has been meted out over all the years that they've been a part of Southern culture, especially again up in the mountains. Even into the present, you still kind of get the sense of that up in the mountains. It hasn't completely gone away even in the year 2021. Now, with all of that in mind, that is the background of, upon which William Faulkner is drawing inside of his tale. He's also drawing on some of the traditional roles that men and women played. I summarized the story just a second ago. I you know, I mentioned Bayard's father, who is Sir Torres, uh, and I might get some angry emails or something. I might be mispronouncing these, but these are the ways I've always heard them. So uh, Sir Torres uh, is married to someone named Drusilla. And that's the part of a larger plot from The Unvanquished, which is where this uh, this particular story is taken. It's the final chapter in that book. But uh, Drusilla 
cannot go and get revenge for her husband's murder. And that is an important part of the story because she kind of uh, freaks out, honestly, freaks out on Bayard. It uh, wants him to go and get the justice as she sees it that she herself cannot get. She says to him, take them, meaning some pistols that she's trying to give him. I've kept them for you. I give them to you. Oh, you will thank me. You will remember me who put into your hands what they say is an attribute only of gods who took what belongs to heaven and gave it to you. Do you feel them? The long true barrels, true as justice, the triggers, you have fired them quick as retribution. The two of them slender and invincible and fatal as the physical shape of love. Now, again, she's She's imposing this onto Bayard because she herself, as a woman, cannot go and get this justice. She wants him to take these pistols. Likewise, um, Sir Torres's good friend, George Wyatt, wants Bayard to go and exact this justice. And the uh, this is because, again, it's expected that, that justice, um, those roles, the, the, the role that men are supposed to play in this given culture uh, at this given moment, are just a, a part of that that rule set that guides all behaviors. So William Faulkner is writing about this background. He's writing as a Southerner about the South and the basic expectations that exist at this particular moment in the South's history. But this is a moment of transition as well because Bayard represents the future. His father um, says as much at one point in the story but this is not well communicated to other characters in the story, and they discover it in their own ways. So if we go back to Drusilla, uh, we might, for example, look at the particular passage wherein Faulkner says, because they are wise, women are a touch, lips or fingers, and the knowledge, even clairvoyance, goes straight to the heart without bothering the laggard brain at all. She stood erect now, staring at me with intolerable and amazed incredulity, which occupied her face alone for a whole minute while her eyes were completely empty. It seemed to me that I stood there for a full minute while Aunt Jenny and Lavinia watched us, waiting for her eyes to fill. I'm going to skip a little bit, but she goes on. Why, he's not, she said. He's not. And I kissed his hand. It's at this moment that she realizes that Bayard is not going to go and kill his father's assassin. Likewise, if we skip a little bit further into the story, we see that George Wyatt has a very similar reaction. Um, he's offering to give Bayard a gun because he wants to ensure that Bayard goes in armed when he confronts Redmond. When George Wyatt realizes that that's just not going to happen, his reaction is very similar to that of Drusilla. Is your name Sir Torres? By God, if you don't kill him, I'm going to. And so both of these characters represent the culture itself. And their writing captures that culture, and it captures it well. If you're uh, somebody who's lived in the South for any period of time and had any experience whatsoever with uh, those from the mountains, yeah, these these lines ring true because these are the sorts of ways in which people still think to the present. They might not go out and actively do these things, but um, th those sorts of cultures and traditions still manifest. If somebody attacks a family member, you're going to stand up for that family member. You're going to probably get in a fight with that person at some particular point. I can, I can say, growing up here in the South, I've, I've seen that manifest not just in the mountains but in other locations as well. There's this sense of masculine honor. You're supposed to go out 
and sort of take care of business. And so again, this portion, what Faulkner has recorded accurately reflects the culture itself. But now let's think about Bayard just for a second. I always point to those bumper stickers, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Uh, they have disappeared, I would say, for a couple of years now at this particular point, but it's still hanging on out there. People are still vaguely familiar with it. And I always say, you know, let's get rid of the WWJD. Let's get let's get uh, WWSPD. Well, excuse me, SMD. What would Spider-Man do? Right. Well, what in the world? <laughs> that seems like a really random question, but it's not. One of the reasons that we read comics uh, or read books or you know watch movies is because we project ourselves onto these characters and we say, okay, what would that particular character do? Um, if you were trapped in a building with terrorists, for example, I guarantee you, if you've ever seen the movie, you would probably spend some time thinking, what would John McClane do? Right, because you're going to think, uh, how, how can I act like a hero in this particular case? And so when Faulkner creates the character of Bayard, and Bayard you know, hears all this in the culture around him, and he rejects it, not outright, he doesn't argue with them, he just quietly does it his own way. He goes and confronts Redmond. You can't say he's not brave. He faced down a man with a pistol who easily could have killed him. He ran that man out of town just by the action of confronting him. So again, when Bayard is created as a character, he challenges the overall culture. Faulkner has accurately created the culture in the story, and then he uh, he challenges that culture through the actions of the other character. So thus, the outcome of the story could be said to be, what would Bayard do, right? Because now this creates a new possibility for those inside the culture. Um, this this is a respectable action. It is not an action that has led to bloodshed. It is an action that challenges inherently challenges tradition. It challenges the traditions of the American South, and it thereby creates this own its own new tradition. So the next time that somebody goes and has to confront another individual, they could confront that individual in much the same way that Bayard has done. Now the outcome might not be the same. They might go in confront the person with the dignity of their presence and, uh, you know, get beaten up or something like that, or, you know, I hope not worse, but get beaten up or something like that. Um, but at least it gives them that option. It creates for them a possibility. So what would Jesus do? We ask that question because we're trying to shape our moral behavior to be uh, like Jesus. What would Spider-Man do? We're trying to shape our bravery um, in much the same way as this hero. What would Bayard do? Same thing. Right. And again, that is the purpose and function of art in a given culture is to reflect that culture, to challenge that culture, sometimes at the same time as has happened inside of William Faulkner's story. My hope after covering this is that if you are one of those people that wanders into an art gallery and you just say to yourself, I don't understand what the big deal is, the Mona Lisa, great, it's a picture of a woman, and it's not even a very big picture. Or, you know, you go in and look at Guernica or, or something like that, and you you say, wow, that's a really big canvas, but, you know, I don't really get it. it. That looks like a horse over there, and maybe there's a light bulb, but everything's just really confused. My hope is that you'll at least now understand what the, the function of good art is, which is, again, to evoke or challenge a particular cultural moment. But it's more than that. It's still more than that. Let's put another layer on top here. Uh, William Faulkner is writing his particular story 
at a moment in history when something called modernism is taking place. And modernism uh, attempts to sort of reinvent what literature can and should be. So in the past, you, you might have a tale being told from an omniscient narrator, you know, who's uh, t uh, talking in third person. Um, so he woke up and he had breakfast and then he went out and saw a dragon and had to conquer that particular thing. But modernism attempts to insert the reader into the conscious flow of, uh, of uh, the particular person having that experience. And so it, it goes about this by breaking language in some senses. Uh, it, you know, you have these long, windy sentences and things like William Faulkner and Virginia Woolf that just seem to go on and on. And they, they uh, break grammatical rules because, let's face it, you every single day when you have your thoughts, they're grammatically incorrect and they are uh, they break apart. So you might be thinking about I should go outside and you know mow my lawn or something like that. And then suddenly you're thinking about hot dogs. Right. And then you're like, oh, wait, I forgot. I need to go mow the yard. I was how can I jump to thinking about hot dogs? Because that jump doesn't make any sense to you. And that's what modernism attempts to capture. This is a, a movement in art and literature in the Western world. And so to have that take place, and, and by the way, it's, this movement is, is happening in uh, areas like France, because uh, that's where Faulkner did a great uh, deal of his writing. To have that movement take place and then to come to the American South creates a whole new question. What, what happens when you have an individual culture and then you have an artistic movement that attempts to um, capture something about that culture through the artistic movement itself, right? So art is separate from uh, from the underlying uh, idea itself, right? You have, again, the artistic movement, modernism, and you have the individual culture, the American South. And those things can come into conflict because, quite frankly, some people would read the story and say, this does not reflect my experience at all in the American South. And I think that, that that can be fair. This is, again, that superstructure layered over top of the economic uh, substructure. And for a person who goes out and works every single day in a field, they might say, well, you know, I recognize some parts of this, that sense of masculine honor, uh, but I, I don't recognize the rest of it. This is written in a way that is at odds with my lived experience. Let's take a detour for a quick second here. When photography was invented and people started taking pictures of everything, one of the underlying assumptions about what art could or should be, uh, which was to capture reality for future generations, collapsed. Because after all, why in the world would you need to paint a picture of somebody if you could just go and take a picture? And that picture is going to be a far more accurate representation. And yes, granted, uh, not every picture is created equally. But uh, again, what is the purpose in, in uh, doing a painting for even the worst photographer out there, right, is, is going to be able to take a more accurate picture of that person than uh, arguably perhaps the best painter out there. Now, with all of that in mind, uh, again, we draw back around to art. Um, art adds something to the world. It doesn't just capture the world. It, it does something above and beyond, right? So much like art itself had to adapt to photography, which is why I would say one of the reasons why it became a little strange and abstract, uh, because it was that direct reaction to, to the process of photography. In much the same way, modernism attempted to evoke new things, new ideas for people. 
So when we read this, yes, it might disconnect from the average person's experience, but William Faulkner's work invites the reader in to look for clues and to, to sort of come into this playground and, and have some fun. Um, <laughs> that's not everybody's idea of fun, but there is a great deal of fun to have here. Um, he, for example, compares consistently throughout the story uh, the American South with Greek culture. He sees this sort of Greek tragedy taking place inside of uh, of the American South. He sees you know parallels between those two different cultures, which I, I think are fair to some degree. We have some similarities between the two different cultures as well. Uh, some of the symbols that run throughout the entire work are fun to go and find and to think about what they mean. The argument that I usually make when I present the story is that Verbena itself represents tradition because it's associated with Drusilla. And yes, Drusilla is married to Sertorus, but at one point she attempts to seduce Bayard himself, which on the surface seems really weird and awful. But if she represents the keeper of tradition, which Faulkner is careful to point out at certain points, um, then she is, of course, trying to seduce Bayard into the, the older tradition. She wants him to be a part of that violence. Um, you'll notice as well that once she realizes that he's not going to do what she wants him to do, she sort of disappears from the story. She goes away. Now, um, she's put a sprig of verbena into his lapel, and he goes and he can he can smell it. And you know, she says that this is the thing that she can always smell on the battlefield above the stench of horses and everything else. That you know, the single thing. But if we consider, you know, again, Verbena to represent tradition, tradition, of course, guided the behavior on the battlefields of the American Civil War. That's the entire play, the reason why that battle happened in the first place, because of the traditions that were inherent in the culture itself. At the end of the story, also, uh, Faulkner is very careful to mention that she has left Verbena on his pillow, but Faulkner never calls it by its name. He just uses pronouns. And the reason is, is because if Bayard has invented a new tradition, it cannot be called by the same name that was used for the prior tradition. Uh, you'll also notice that uh, throughout the entire story, Aunt Jenny, for example, brings her tradition with her when she comes to live with uh, her brother, Sertorus. She brings that tradition with her and plants it outside and then tends to it because that's her tradition. And her tradition is distinct from the tradition of Sertorus himself. Now, again, this invites the reader in and then invites the reader to sort of play and this, uh, this association of, uh, let's look at symbols, let's look at characters, and what do the characters mean? So it goes above and beyond simply challenging the culture or writing about the culture. It has flourishes on it, right? And that is, again, the function of good art is to create that, that playground while going about uh, challenging or representing a culture. I hope you can see now, too, that creating good art is extraordinarily challenging because with all of these constraints, that means that you're writing or thinking on multiple levels at the same time. And this is why it is hard to find effective authors who can do it. So let's wrap all that up because I told you that we would. In studying someone like William Faulkner's writing, the underlying goal is to see how he challenges or creates culture through his actions as a writer. Um, yes, of course we need to read uh, the written word as a part of any study of a given culture, but I hope now you can see why we need to go about doing that. It's because 
writing doesn't happen in a vacuum. It does not just simply passively reflect the culture. It actively goes about creating that culture. So when we look at William Faulkner's story, which I've just unpacked for you, you can see that not only does it have, of course, literary flourishes, and not only does it take part in a literary tradition uh, or a particular school of thought that happens to be taking place across the West at that, that moment in history, it also, again, reflects and simultaneously challenges the culture and creates new opportunities for members of that culture. Whereas traditionally, someone would say, you know, of course I have to go out and get revenge. William Faulkner's story, granted, is taking place well after the moment that it's writing about, but it's still speaking to people born and bred inside that tradition and who are familiar with that tradition. William Faulkner's writing does create that new identity opportunity for people who are reading it. So when they read it and then they are faced with a situation where they would traditionally have felt, or have to go and get revenge, now they can say to themselves, okay, I feel like I need to get revenge, but maybe I can try what Bayard tried. Maybe rather than shedding blood, I can simply go and confront the other person with honor and dignity and let's see what happens. Now, whether that takes place in reality or not, that's you know beyond my pay grade, I, I guess we could say. But again, that is the underlying goal. And that's what I'd like to point to as a part of the this podcast and a part as a part of our study of the American South in general. And that brings me to the end of this episode. In the next episode, again, we're going to look at some specific writers from the American South, and we're going to use that as a bridge into really one of the next topics I want to address on this podcast and as a part of this series, which is moving into our study of gender in the American South as well. That gives you kind of a plan of what's going to come next, and uh, I look forward to discussing those things, and I'll see you next time.